you would uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. And if you are using the Pew Bible, you will find our passage on page 909 in the Pew Bible. Acts 1, 6 through 11. Today is Ascension Sunday. We'll be talking about the Ascension of Christ. And this is our text this morning. So please follow along as I read Acts 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven... As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Today is Ascension Sunday, which for most of us is not really a holiday. It's not something that's on our calendar. But in the church calendar, it is an important Sunday. We focus specifically on the time when Jesus went up into heaven to be at the right hand of his Father, to rule over the church and intercede on our behalf. Now the question is, why set a whole Sunday aside for this? Why focus on this particular event and this particular doctrine? The reason is that every event and the redemptive work of Christ is important. Yes, we have Good Friday and Easter, death of Christ, resurrection. Yes, we have Christmas, that's important, His birth, His incarnation. But there are other events that are also important. Church calendar allows us to follow the rhythm of the gospel on an annual basis. And so today, we are reminded that we worship Jesus who not only died and rose again, but also ascended into heaven. Now, why is that important? That's sort of our question this morning. I'd like to point out three things related to Christ's ascension from this text. In the ascension of Christ, power is released. That's number one. Number two, purpose is established. And number three, promise is made. So there's power, purpose, and a promise in the ascension of Christ. Let's start with power. Now look with me, please, at verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, so this is the disciples with the resurrected Jesus, and they're asking him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, what are they asking? Remember, these are Jewish believers steeped in God's promises to His people over the centuries. They've been expecting this this long-prophesied, long-promised Messiah, the divine King in the line of David. They were expecting Him to come and take the throne in Jerusalem. 
They want Israel to be restored to what it was at the time of David and Solomon, an independent, prosperous state occupying the land promised by God to Abraham and his descendants. Now, Jesus is the Messiah. They all understand that. Uh, He is from the line of David. He just defied the power of Rome by rising from the dead. Rome couldn't kill him. And so this is not an unreasonable question to ask. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, will you at this time take the throne, kick the oppressors out, and restore political and economic power to Israel? A perfectly legitimate question to be asked at this time. But look at how Jesus answers this question, verses 7 and 8. He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, notice there's a rebuke here. He's saying, you know, we're not supposed to figure out the exact time Jesus will return and restore a political and economic kingdom. We're not supposed to spend time on on chronological charts of the end times. We're not supposed to set dates for Christ's return. Those have been determined by God's authority. And this is not for us to know. Jesus says, don't worry about the timing. The economic and political kingdom is not going to happen just yet. But, notice what he says. He's saying, don't worry about that. But, he says, you will receive power. I will not give you political or economic power at this time, but you will receive power of a different kind, divine power, the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God Himself, will come upon you. Jesus says, I'm not going to stay here in Israel physically. I'm not going to assume economic and political control right now. Instead, I'm going to leave and release divine power into the church. Now, the disciples wanted Jesus to stay. They wanted His physical presence and physical rule. But Jesus knew that it would be better for them if He left. His physical absence would bring the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is saying, you want me to stay, but it is better if I go. It is better for you, it is to your benefit, to your advantage, if I am physically absent. Why? Jesus continues, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The helper is the Holy Spirit. If I go, I will send him to you. It was better for the believers to receive the Spirit than to have Jesus physically rule in Jerusalem at that time. Listen to Calvin. John Calvin says, Christ left us in such a way that His presence might be more useful to us. A presence that had been confined in a humble abode of flesh so long as He sojourned on earth. As His body was raised up above all the heavens, so His power and energy were diffused and spread beyond all the bounds of heaven and earth. 
as his body left, as Jesus physically left his people, his power and energy were diffused and spread beyond all the bounds of heaven and earth. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' spiritual presence is of much greater benefit to us right now. Barbara Brown Taylor wrote an article in Christianity Today a few years ago on the ascension of Christ, and this is a quote that, that stuck with me. She said, It was almost as if he had not ascended but exploded, so that all the holiness that was once concentrated in him alone flew everywhere, flew far and wide, so that the seeds of heaven were sown into all the fields of the earth. Jesus ascended, but through his ascension, he exploded. There's this power and energy. Heaven itself is now being spread and and planted all over the world. So for those of us, and there are some of us, that think it would have been better had Jesus not left us, I want us to see how the ascension of Christ, his physical absence from his disciples, ushered an even greater presence, an even greater power through the Holy Spirit. Now think about it. During his life on earth, Jesus never left Palestine. He stayed local. He didn't travel very much. He he confined his activity... He confined his ministry to a very limited territory. But now, through the Holy Spirit, every believer, wherever they are, in, in, in America and in Ukraine and New Zealand and Sudan, anywhere that the believers are, the Holy Spirit is present. And Christ is living through them all over the world now. When Jesus lived, he had 12 disciples, one of whom betrayed him. He had maybe a hundred followers, right? And yet now we have hundreds of millions of followers of Christ. Through the ascension of Christ, through the, the importance of the Holy Spirit, now the church is so much bigger than it could ever have been in Christ's time. While it's correct to say that Jesus is physically absent from us today, In many ways, he is even more present with us now through the Spirit than when he was walking among us. How is Jesus present with us today? He is present through his Spirit and through his church. And his influence now is much greater than it was before. Through his Spirit and through his church, his teachings, his healings, his power are available to many, many people all over the world. Now, this is a good example for us on how God answers our prayers. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, Please restore your kingdom to Israel. We want economic and political control over this particular area of the world. And Jesus said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something much bigger, something much greater. You won't get economic and political power, but you will get the divine power through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says no to their request. And yet he says no because he means to give them something much bigger. So when we pray, 
and we ask for something and Jesus says no to us, please remember that He only says no because He means to give us something better. This is such an important lesson to learn for us as believers. When we pray and we ask God and we plead for something that is so important to us, and it is important, and God says no, and He doesn't respond to that prayer request, our first thought is He doesn't care, or He can't do it. He's delaying, He's doing something else. Whatever we're thinking, that is not the case. When He says no, it is because there's something better that He means to give us. Jesus gave His followers even greater power, even greater presence of Himself, even greater purpose, even a greater promise, as we will see, because He said no to His initial request. He gives the disciples, as He does to us, much more than we expect and much more than we can imagine. Now, think about the church in the book of Acts, the early church. They were politically marginalized, no political power. They were economically weak, mostly poor people. And those who were rich gave their money to the poor. And yet they exerted incredible influence on the people around them because they had the power of the Holy Spirit. So they lacked economical power, they lacked political power. And yet because they had the power of the Holy Spirit, they were able to transform the world. Turn the world upside down. I mean, friends, this is true. This is historically true. Sociologists write books trying to document how this sect was able to transform the empire in a very short time. How did that happen? It happened not because of the political power, not because of the money they had. It happened because of the Holy Spirit working in them. Remember the lame beggar at the beautiful gate at the temple. This is Acts 3, asking Peter and John for money. This is the same principle. He was only asking for money. But look what Peter does, how he responds. Acts 3, verses 6, 6 through 8. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This is incredible. Both health and joy are restored to this person. He asked for neither. He asked for money. Peter says, no, I don't have money, but what I have I give you. And a healing occurs, and a restoration, a spiritual restoration of this person occurs. Now he is walking into the temple where he was not welcome before. This is is an amazing thing, and this is exactly the same dynamic that happened with the disciples. They're saying, give us economic and political power. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. The beggar says, give me money, and Peter says, I'm not going to give you money, but I'm going to give you healing and joy and restoration with God. They get much more than they ask, even though the initial response is no, you won't get what you're asking for, but you will get so much more, and you will receive something that is so much better. There's a story that's told about Thomas Aquinas. 
I don't know if it's true, but I've heard it told many times. Thomas Aquinas was a medieval theologian. Uh, He was summoned by the Pope to his office, and as he went into the Pope's study, he found the Pope counting money at his desk. And the Pope jokingly said, the church can no longer say, silver and gold, we have none, which is what Peter said to the lame beggar, right? Aquinas replied, neither can the church say, rise up and walk. Now we have money. Now we have economic and political power, but we don't have the Holy Spirit. We're operating in a different way, Aquinas is saying. Tozer, A.W. Tozer said, this is, Kevin Hartman and I have been talking about Tozer last few weeks because he's reading a book by Tozer and I like Tozer a lot too. And we are just amazed how what Tozer said 50, 60, 70 years ago seems to be so true of us today. So this is an observation by A.W. Tozer. He says, If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Let's take this to heart. As we think about Chatham, as we think about our church, if the Holy Spirit left, what would survive here without the power of the Holy Spirit? What would go on and would we know the difference that the power of the Holy Spirit is gone? Are we doing God's work by human means? And even in our prayers, are we asking for human answers to divine problems? Even as we pray, right? And we have certain issues to resolve. We have certain things to plan. How are we praying? Are we praying for divinely inspired solutions? For divinely empowered actions? Or are we simply finding the things to fit into our plans and our programs that we know will work? See, our prayers depend on how we see God. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to give you political and economic power, but I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, are we using this power of the Holy Spirit? Are we relying on the power of the Holy Spirit? Do we feel desperately dependent on the Spirit? Because if not, what are we even doing here? Right? There are lots of organizations that are run better than churches. Let's just go do that. There's lots of organizations that provide a greater community sometimes than many churches. Let's just go do that. Let's go join them. But if we have the Holy Spirit, and if we are dependent on Him, if everything that happens really happens because of His power, then this is a special gathering of people. Oh, I want to be here. If the Holy Spirit is here, if He changes us, if He moves us, if He heals us, if He is doing all those things, then I want to be a part of the church. I want to be here because the Spirit is here. So as we process that, let's, let's take Tozer's uh, quote to heart. Are we relying desperately on the Holy Spirit? And I know for many of us, 
you get to that point of desperation when you realize nothing else has worked and doesn't seem to have any prospect of working and you are out of prayer requests and you get to the point where you say all I have is God now friends this is a blessed place to be in I think we should probably start in that place as opposed to wait for all the human things to fail until we get to the Holy Spirit why don't we start there why don't we come to him and say Lord if if there's going to be any growth in this body it has to be by the Holy Spirit we don't want it to grow based on human strategies if there's going to be any conversions it's not going to be because somebody has presented the gospel in such a clever way and as they prayed he held her hand and 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 gently pressed it in the moment of decision and that is why that person came to Christ no if anybody gets converted please let's let's recognize that it's the Holy Spirit moving in their heart which means that can happen at any time with any person no matter how far we think that person is from God or how close they they appear to be to God the way we know one of the ways not the only way but one of the ways we know that a church is reliant on the Holy Spirit and is making use of the power of the Holy Spirit promised by the ascended Christ is based on our public prayer activities when we gather to pray publicly this is an expression of our dependence on the Holy Spirit if we don't pray together this is a pretty good sign that we are not relying on the Holy Spirit and there's something to be said that in most churches today getting people to turn out to a public prayer meeting is almost impossible and we are not an exception unfortunately in that now people pray we've seen some good changes and we see people showing up to some of the events but still it is one of the more difficult things to do at church is to get people to pray together that speaks directly to our lack of dependence on the Holy Spirit because if we believed friends if we really believed that the Spirit works that he responds to our prayers that he moves among us when we focus on God together as a congregation don't you think we would pray a lot together Amen. I mean if that's the means of, of of the power of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives of the wisdom of the Holy Spirit coming into our thoughts wouldn't we pray a lot why not it betrays our unbelief that we don't pray as much as we should now don't don't take it as a I'm not putting guilt on you I'm observing things and I'm saying for Chatham to thrive for any church to thrive we need to depend on the Holy Spirit Jesus says don't count on the economic and the political strategies don't count on the organizational theory don't don't count on that those are not bad things they're just inadequate for what the church is he's saying I'm gonna give you the power of the Holy Spirit God himself will dwell in you and will dwell among you and will move among you and do amazing things with you a church that worships the ascended Savior relies on the power of the Holy Spirit now that's the power of the ascension what is the purpose of the ascension look at verse 8 Jesus says but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples here are called to function as Christ's witnesses in this ever-expanding movement. Jerusalem, this is where they receive the Holy Spirit. Then in Judea and Samaria, which is the surrounding areas, and then even to the end of the earth. Now that doesn't mean we should take care of Jerusalem before we go to Samaria or before we go to the ends of the earth. That's not what it means. It just means that the Holy Spirit came in Jerusalem and now this movement is exploding and spreading. And we are part of it now where we are today. One commentator said, Instead of permitting them to occupy their minds with an unknown future, meaning when will Christ come back and when will the kingdom be established, Jesus sends them into present work. So instead of thinking about the uncertain future, unknown future, we are sent into present work today. Instead of telling them when the kingdom will come, he assigns to them the work of bringing in the kingdom. Now this is interesting the way Jesus changes the focus here. The disciples ask Jesus, will you now restore kingdom to Israel? And Jesus asks the disciples, Will you be my witnesses? He gives them purpose. What are we to do until Jesus returns? We are to be his witnesses. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean to be a witness? I like the way one commentator put it. He said, to be a witness is to speak from personal knowledge of facts and their significance. To be a witness is to speak from personal knowledge of facts and their significance. So there are two necessary components to being a witness, or at least a good witness. One, personal experience, and two, willingness to speak about it. Think about all the hours and hours of police and court dramas that you have watched on TV. Okay, we, we can. Every generation has their favorite court dramas and almost in every episode they're always looking for someone who witnessed the crime right who was there someone who got a good look someone who who remembers well what happened and can identify the perpetrator and then the defense attorney always tries to discredit the witness by showing that they were not actually there and that their eyesight is so bad that they can't identify the perpetrator. There's always that, you know, dramatic scene when they say, can you look over there, you know, and do you see that person? Are they wearing glasses today? And they're saying, I can't see that far. And they say, you are discredited, sir. And, and every, everything falls apart. Witness is only as good if they can speak from personal experience and show that what they're saying is true because they were there. They can tell you it's true because they know it to be true. This first component of Christian witness is our personal experience of Christ. We cannot be good witnesses unless we can speak about Christ from personal experience. Now, of course, the disciples in our passage were physically there and personally witnessed many of Jesus' works, which is why Apostle John, when he writes his first letter, he begins it by saying, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John can talk about Jesus in those terms. He's saying, we were there, we touched it, we saw it, we heard it, we speak from our personal experience. But what about us? We were not there in Jerusalem when all those things happened to Jesus. But remember the Holy Spirit, right? We've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. Not necessarily the physical presence of Jesus, but the spiritual presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit comes to every believer in place of Jesus and assures us of the truth of the cross and the empty tomb. Because of the Spirit, we too personally experience Jesus and can be His witnesses. Now here's my proof, Galatians 3, verse 1. Paul is writing to the Galatian believers who were not there when Jesus was crucified. They did not physically see it or heard it. And yet he says in verse 1 of Galatians 3, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul is saying, through my preaching, and not just through his preaching, but through the power of the Holy Spirit that used the means of the preaching, it's as if Jesus was crucified before their very eyes. So they can be his witnesses because they know from personal experience that Jesus was crucified for their sins. They personally experienced the crucified and risen Jesus, and so they can speak about him from that personal experience. The question is, can you speak of Jesus from your personal experience? Can I be a witness to what Jesus did from my personal conviction, my personal experience with him? Do you personally know Jesus? I'm going to draw a line here. When I say, do you personally know Jesus, I do not mean that you have considered the facts of the gospel and you found them plausible. That's not personal knowledge of Christ. You know it's true. You know because the Spirit of God convinced you that Jesus really died and really rose and then His death and resurrection have made you absolutely acceptable to God. So God's grace is not a concept or an idea for you primarily. It's real. You have experienced it. It's changed your life. You feel it. You can describe it. When Scripture says that the Spirit pours the love of the Father into our hearts, you know what it means. Because the love of the Father has been poured into your heart. You can talk about it from your personal experience. You can say, I know what I'm talking about. It's true because I have experienced it. Yes, it is objectively true, but it is subjectively true for me. I speak based on my own experience of Christ. Now, can you say, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Can you talk about it in those experiential terms? I am in no way neglecting the truth of Scripture, our responsibility to have good arguments, to defend the gospel. I'm not, this is all very important, but I'm not talking about that. 
I'm talking about personal connection to Christ. So when you say things like, I've tasted the goodness of the Lord, that's an experience. It's like saying, I have tasted honey. I know what it tastes like. Maybe I can't describe it perfectly, but I know what it tastes like. Maybe I can't describe the goodness of the Lord perfectly, but I know what it tastes like. I know what it feels like to me. Maybe I don't have all the theological answers, but I know what the grace of God is, because it happened to me. I know because I have experienced it. That experience provides the basis for our witness. And so, if that experience is real to you, in all sorts of circumstances, you've gone through various things with the Lord, and, and, and Christ has proven to be true and faithful to you, and the gospel makes sense, it clicks, and the Holy Spirit is active in your life, and you know when He moves, you know when He speaks. If that is true of you, then speaking about it, I don't think is all that difficult. That's the second component of being a good witness, is speaking from your personal experience. If that experience is real, I think speaking from it is, is much easier. The question is, is that experience real? Or are there other things in your life that just seem more real than Jesus? Things in your life that, that, that grab your attention much quicker than Jesus does. Things that are more exciting to you than Jesus is. I find it disturbing when you see a group of Christians talking, and they're talking about church or scripture or whatever, spiritual things, and then somebody brings up the game. And they say, have, have you watched the game yesterday? And the conversation just gets livelier. And people get excited. They get engaged. Now everybody has something to say about the game. That's disturbing. That means their experience of sports is so much more real than their experience of Christ. Again, I am not saying there's anything wrong with enjoying sports. But I'm saying comparatively, if your heart engages with your team much quicker to a much deeper level than it does with Christ, that's not right. Or if somebody brings up a movie or a TV show and all of a sudden, everybody's excited. And they're all talking about their favorite character and how that plot twist was just so unexpected. And yet, when you bring up Jesus, there's a lull. We don't have much to say anymore. Now, let me say this. I, I love sports. I love hockey. A good you know, triple overtime game is, is just exciting as anything. I mean, it's great, right? Herm took me to a, a Blues-Hawks game a few weeks ago. Man, that was exciting. I mean, that was really cool. But come on, even, even the most exciting playoff hockey game has nothing on a passing thought about my Savior's love for us. They're, they're in different categories. You can't compare the two. I love TV, my confession. I love TV. You know, there, there are shows that, are, that, are, that, that just draw you in and you follow the characters and you follow the plot lines and a good storyline is, is so exciting. But come on. I mean, you look at the gospel and you say, what could be more amazing than the Lord coming into our world, becoming one of us, dying and rising for me? 
I mean, wh- what is a story that can beat that? So if I think about that, right, and if my experience of Christ is real, why would I not want to talk about the greatest story? Why would I not want to talk about the joy that is available in Christ that, that is not like any other joy we have known? If the experience is real, I think we will talk about it with others and be Christ's witnesses. Now finally, there's a promise of the ascension. Verses 9 through 11. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The promise is that Jesus will return. Our Lord will come back in power and in glory, and he will judge the living and the dead. He will establish his kingdom and rule over everything, including the political aspects and the economic aspects of life and the spiritual aspects of life. All the promises will be fulfilled. Jesus will come back. But the question is, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do as we wait for him to come back? We are to receive the power of the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. There's a rebuke here from the angels. The angels say, why are you standing around? What are you doing looking up into the sky? Get on with your mission. You will receive the power of the Holy Spirit and you will be his witnesses. Witnesses to what Jesus has done in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's our job. That's our purpose. That's the, the promise is that when Jesus returns, we will welcome him as already part of his kingdom, as already serving him well and spreading his kingdom to the ends of the earth. That's our call today, to be his witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit until he returns. How do we do that? How do we do that here in North County, in St. Louis, and even through our missionaries to the ends of the earth? How do we do that? What does it look like for us, for Chatham today? Let's ask the Holy Spirit. This is my answer. If you're asking those questions, what does it look like for us to be witnesses here? Here and and spreading out into North County and the St. Louis area and into the world. What does it look like? Let's talk to the Holy Spirit about it. Let's pray together. Let's come together and be open to Him to use us whichever way He wants. Be open to Him and say, yeah, this is not about our strategies ultimately. Strategies change. Let the Holy Spirit move us the way He wants. And let us be responsive to that. Open before Him and say, I, we will be Christ's witnesses until He returns. So the next prayer meeting is scheduled and I'm not promoting anything in particular. This is just general thoughts. When the next prayer meeting is scheduled, show up. When somebody comes to you at church and they're struggling, pray with them. When you're facing a decision, pray for the Holy Spirit to show you exactly what you need to do and to give you power to do it well. And when your prayer isn't answered, when you pray for something that you think is an excellent solution to your circumstances, and the Lord says no, please remember that He says no because He means to give you something better. And so trust Him 
in that. Now, the way we express that dependence on the Holy Spirit, the way we express our desire to be His witnesses until He returns, is ritually at His table. The reason, one of the reasons why we do it every Sunday is because we don't want to forget what Jesus has done for us. And as we remember, as we experience it again, as our hearts engage with the story of the gospel again, the Holy Spirit moves us to go and witness to Jesus, to your family and to your friends, to your neighbors. And I'm not talking about a simplistic solution of just saying, I'm going to pass so many tracks to so many people and I'm done. I'm talking about a whole life that is transformed by the Holy Spirit where we witness to Jesus in all sorts of areas, in all sorts of ways, because we've been given the Holy Spirit who guides us. So as we come to the table, these are our thoughts. We come as witnesses. We come asking for a greater experience of Christ so our witness could be stronger. We come relying on the Holy Spirit to prove the gospel to us again and say, this story has to be the dominant story for me. Holy Spirit, help me. This power has to be accessible to me. Holy Spirit, help me. If you're a believer, wherever you are in the spectrum of spiritual growth, you're welcome at this table. You're welcome to come and renew your faith, for your faith to be nurtured, for the Holy Spirit again to speak to you, to help you, to empower you, to be a witness for Him. If you're not a believer, I'm going to ask you to not come to the table. This is not for you. That's not because we don't want you or we don't like you. We love you. We want you to be part of our church. But we want you to be part of our church on the right terms, through Christ. We'd rather you not pretend or give in to peer pressure. We'd rather you meet with Christ today. We'd rather you taste and see that the Lord is good. So you can speak from your personal experience. And as you come to the table next time, as a converted believer transformed by Christ... And you take the bread and you take the cup, you would say, oh, I taste it now. This is good. The Lord is good to us in Christ. So let me pray. And then after I finish my prayer, we're going to sing. And I encourage all the believers to come forward. You can take the communion right up here and leave the cup in the basket here. Or you can take it back to your seats if you want more time to meditate, to confess your sins, to to think about your witness to others in your life. If you are unable to come forward, we would love to bring communion to you. There will be an elder who will pass it to those that, that can't come forward. If you're new here and can't come forward, just raise your hand. We'll find you. We want to make sure that you don't miss out on this as well. If you're out in the balconies, there are tables set up for you there. You're welcome to come forward where you are. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you that you are a good God, that what you give us is good. Even when we don't know what to ask for, even when we ask for inferior things, we thank you that you can adjust it and you can give us what is better, what is greater, things we can't even imagine. So think about the book of Acts and all the things that your spirit has done. I don't think anybody anticipated half of those things. And yet a church that was open to the power of the Holy Spirit accomplished amazing things for Christ's glory. 
Lord, we want to be that kind of a church. We don't want to be a church that survives on human wisdom, on human resources, on economic or political influence. We want to be a church that is utterly dependent on the movings of the Holy Spirit. We want to be the kind of community that begs you to send your spirit, to intervene, to bless us, to empower us, to heal us. The kind of a congregation that loves to come together and pray to express that dependence, that desperation for your work. We want to be the kind of a kind of church that is so so deeply engaged with Christ that with the Galatians we can also say, right before our eyes, Christ was crucified. This is so real to us. The grace of God is so real to us that we would want to share it with everybody. But we're not looking for easy solutions for formulas for success. We're going straight to the source of all power to you and pray that your Holy Spirit would move in us and among us. Even as we come to this table, we pray that you would, that the Holy Spirit would pour your love into our hearts. Remind us again that we are loved because of Christ. We are accepted, blessed because of Christ. As we come to this table, we pray that our faith will get stronger, that we will catch another glimpse of your beauty and glory, that as we take the bread and take the cup, that it would not just be going through the motions, but it would be a spiritual experience moving us to be witnesses for Christ. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let us do it together.